we were saying this last week or the past couple weeks is Mark has is, is moved really quickly uh, through the story of Jesus' life and his earthly ministry. Uh, Mark is one of his famous words, I've said this mo- multiple times, is immediately. He quickly moves from story to story. But as we get to the last week of Jesus' life on earth, uh, he slows down remarkably. Uh, he pauses and we look at each day of his last week. Uh, we started with Sunday, the Sunday of his final week, the Passion Week. Uh, you probably are familiar with that first, that first day. That Sunday is known as the Palm Sunday, is how we celebrate it around the week before Easter. Uh, and it is the day uh, that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Everything was heading towards Jerusalem. Jesus was leading the way with his disciples to Jerusalem. And he knew what was ahead of, in store for him that week. Uh, This was not by surprise for him. Uh, He knew it was coming. He knew he has already predicted three times in the book of Mark his death and that he would suffer. The Son of Man will suffer. Uh, And so he's told his disciples this on three different occasions. This is where I'm headed. This is my purpose. They don't still see it. They're still waiting. He's the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to rule and reign. He's going to lead us um, from the oppression of Rome and we're going to be free people again. This is this kingdom that's talked about in the Old Testament. They're thrilled about this. This is the one. They've, they've, they've left their livelihoods. They've left their boats, their family and friends and, and others. And they said, we're going to follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And they followed him for three years. And now Jesus kept saying, I'm going to die. And they're going like, a Messiah doesn't die. A Messiah rules and reigns. They don't die. Like this, and that's why Peter is saying, no, 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 you can't do this. But this is exactly what Jesus says is to come. And so he comes in triumphantly. We would think normally a triumphal entry would be on a war horse. Here comes this mighty king who's conquered the nations, or he's coming in to conquer and to remove and to lead a rebellion against the oppressive nation over them, like in Rome. But instead, he rides on a donkey, lowly, humble. He walks in, and he's the suffering servant. We're gonna, our song of response this morning is going to be man of sorrows, looking and reflecting on the thoughts of Jesus, the man of sorrows. And he comes and it tells us that as Mark is looking at this first week, this last week of Jesus' life, he enters into Jerusalem on this donkey and then he goes to the temple the first time. He observes it's late at night, he looks around and then he goes and he leaves. And the next day, this is what we looked at last week, the next day he comes back into again to Jerusalem and goes into the temple and this time he comes to remove the, the hypocrisy. He, he comes in and he sees the temple. And what does he see? He describes it as this, is a, this temple was a, a place of a house of prayer for the nations. And he described it as it, a place that was a den of robbers. You've made it a den of robbers. Meaning this is a place where people would look like they were following the God. Like they were godly people that looked like godly activity. The temple worship. But what they were doing was they were robbing from the people. People would have come from all over the surrounding areas, from other nations, and they would turn in their currency there, and they would switch their currency to the temple currency, and here they had used this, and they'd taken the court of the Gentiles. I know some of this may not make too much sense to you, but in the the Gentile area, this was for the nations to come and to worship, that there was a place for them there too. But yet they had turned that court of the Gentiles into their own little trading station. And they turned it into like this bazaar, um, that all this activity, it's lively, it's loud, and all these transactions are going. There's no worship there. Jesus looks at it, and he wants to drive out all this phony, fake 
uh, worship out of this temple. He says, you've taken this and made it a den of robbers. He drives them out. He also gives us an illustration of the story, of an actual story where he curses the fig tree. And as he curses this fig tree, he's giving us a picture of what was happening. He's saying this was a fruitless nation. This temple worship was fruitless. The people of God were not worshiping God. They were just going through motions and they were stealing from the people and making a livelihood off of the people and using the temple for this. And he gives us this picture of this unfruitful people, meaning they're dead. As Jesus said, his own words in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And he's saying there's no fruit in Israel. And so he condemns even the temple. And he's predicting something about the temple. We're going to see it here in our passage this morning. But if, we, if you have a Bible, I want you to look with me. I'm going to look at this passage. So chapter 11, starting in verse 27. This morning what we see is Jesus' authority is questioned. This, they're questioning his authority, but what they're doing is they're not, we know their ulterior motives. Their ulterior motives have already been given to us. We saw that at the beginning of Mark's gospel. They were seeking how to kill Jesus. And really what we find is he is at odds with their authority. They're looking around and going like, wait, Jesus is going to steal our authority and we can't have that. And so naturally they come and they're going to begin to challenge Jesus. And this is what we're going to see. This is now Tuesday of Passion Week. And Tuesday we're going to cover in a few weeks. There's a lot that happens in, on Tuesday with the teachings of Jesus on this day. So if you have a Bible, Mark 11 verse 27. It tells us, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, so now he's come to the temple a third time. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest... And the scribes and the elders came to him. So here's what's happening. So to give you a picture, these three groups are the San, combined make up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a collection of 71 men. And these men came from these three different groups that are mentioned. The chief priests. Chief priests are former high priests. You were a high priest at one point. You now are a chief priest. And so now these, these chief priests, these former high priests, would now serve on this kind of council of the Sanhedrin. And then there were the scribes. These are the ones who were skilled in knowing the law. They were the teachers of the law. And so these, these men would know the law really, really well. And then there was the elders. These would have been laymen who had status among the people. And so these 71 men had extreme amount of authority. I want to I put it this way. There, there's so much authority that they have that here's kind of like if we put it into our context in America, it would be as if one group of men, 71 men, had covered all three branches of our government. So if they had, you know, like, like, like every aspect, so they could control everything. It wasn't like there was a separation of powers. There was the Sanhedrin could control all aspects for the Jews. And so here, with their authority being compromised by this claiming Messiah, they don't like it. And so they're going to address him, and they're trying to trap him. They want to get him on a cross. We know this from Scripture. And so it tells us, they said to him in verse 28, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Where does your authority come from, Jesus? We want to know. 
Well, we know from even Mark's gospel, if you weren't with us, if you go way back to chapter 1, 2, and 3, I spent a few weeks talking about the authority of Jesus as we saw his authority and his teaching. They marveled at his teaching and they said, "Who, who gave him this kind of authority? He speaks with such authority. Whereas the rabbis would point to themselves, they'd point to, you know, Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai or whatever. They would point to the different rabbis and say, they said this, now you need to obey that. They would point to other rabbis. Jesus wasn't pointing to other rabbis. He was speaking as if he was, he was the authority. And they didn't like it. And they're going, what is this man? And who is this man? And then when Jesus healed a man, remember, they, remember this is a long time ago, I know, but if you look back in Mark, you can see it. When, when they were lowering this friend down who was paralyzed, remember that? They take the roof off, they lower this person down. They want to they get their person to Jesus because they know he, that Jesus could heal them. Do you remember what Jesus first said about this man? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. He showed that he has the authority to forgive sins. And again, they're going like, how does he, a man, have this kind of authority? How does he have the authority to wipe away someone's sin? Only God can do that, the Jews would know. Yet he has this kind of authority. And they're going, all right, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They're wanting to hear him say certain things because they want to trap him. They have ulterior motives. He's going to claim, either he's going to claim that he got this authority from God, like, like a prophet, like given this authority, or if it was by man, well, they're going to go, well, who, who, like what camp did you get this? Show us your credentials. Like, Jesus, where's your credentials? Like, which camp do you fall in? Where, where were you taught? Where did you learn these things from? They want to know these things. And look how Jesus reacts. And I, I think there's a lesson here. We're really I'm just going to walk through this. I don't have like any main points per se. There's just lessons along the way that we're going to learn. And you can write those down as we go. And I think one little lesson right here is just watching Jesus' tact with dealing with hostile people. You know, when, when there's someone who's trying to trap you, like for instance, maybe, maybe someone at work or somewhere along the way hears that you're a Christian, you try to have a conversation about God and Christianity, and they begin to question that. They begin to question, your, like, 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 how do you know these things? And you're trying to answer yourself, and maybe you're, you're like, I don't know, can you just talk to my pastor or something? Like, you're like, someone else, I'm not, I'm not sure the, the answer to these questions. You might not feel skilled in knowing how to answer one, there's a really good book called Tactics that would really, really, I would encourage you to read. It's a helpful tool on this. But we get to see Jesus putting that tact into play. And watch what he does. He uses a question. So sometimes you just put questions. And in the book Tactics, I've, I've heard the, the author say this. He's like, when you're asking these questions, what you're doing is you're just putting, he's like, sometimes you leave that conversation not trying to convince them, hey, you need to follow Jesus. Just all you did was maybe leave a little pebble in their shoe. Something kind of like, a, you know, like, have you ever had a pebble or in my house, a Lego in your shoe? You know, you're, it's like, it's painful. It's annoying. You're like, all right, I got to fix this, right? So when you're having this conversation, Jesus, he's leaving a little pebble in their shoe. He's saying, well, let me ask you a question first. And if you can answer my question, then I'll answer your question. And so he asks, because why? Look what he says. It says, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's his question. Notice his question. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? 
So was John's baptism, that's John the Baptist, if you're trying to figure out who that is, it's John the Baptist. Remember, go way back to the beginning. Jesus, in the beginning of his public ministry, what happened? Right? He was like the, the forerunner to Jesus' public ministry was John the Baptist. And what was his message? His message was repent. His, his message was a repenting and preparing our hearts for the coming Messiah. His call was a, a call of repentance, and it was a baptism of repentance. It's not the same baptism that we say today as a believer, as a follower of Jesus is. This was a baptism of a, of a picture of repentance, of saying we're repenting of our sins because the Jews had wandered away from God. They were worshiping idols, and we see this throughout the Old Testament over and over again. And John is calling the people, prepare your hearts for the coming king. And what Jesus did was, in a a moment of symbolism, he comes and he is baptized himself as well, identifying with humanity. And in that moment, do you remember what happened? The skies opened up, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Where is Jesus' authority comes from? Jesus is asking them this question because that's, where he's pointing them and reminding them about John and his authority, but he's not telling them that. He's, he's, he's leading them. And so here it says, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority. And, they, and here's this question. Who was the, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, here's why this is a difficult question for them. It tells us the answer. You don't need my explanation necessarily. Verse 31, and they discussed it with one another, saying, because then they start discussing. They're like, all right. Have you ever had that? You've been questioned. You're like, all right, we can need to come up with a good group answer here. Uh, what should we say? And you're, you're like deferring to who, who's the smartest guy in the room? Like, tell us what we should say. So they discussed this with one another. And, and they, here's what they determined about his question. If we say John's baptism was from heaven, we think Jesus is going to say this. He will say, why then did you not believe him? Like, hey, If John's baptism is from heaven, that means he's a prophet of God. He was sent by God, and he told you to repent of your sins. And he says, if it's from heaven, he'll go and he'll respond to us. Why then did you not believe him? But then they started thinking about the opposite answer. But shall we say from man? Like, if his authority came from man, notice what he says. They were afraid of the people. Why? Because the people, this is what this means here, the people held that John really was a prophet. The, the, the surrounding people, the Israelites, really thought that John, believed that John was a prophet of God. And many did go out to the wilderness and repent of their sins. They went out there to him and they followed John with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the religious people of the day didn't, but they knew most people did. And so they feared the people. So verse 33 says, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, if you're not going to answer me, I don't need to answer your questions. But I, I want to pause for a second and see something here in this passage. I think there's a, there's a lesson to be learned here. And this is a problem for many people. I know it's a problem in my heart. Is that we can have a very unhealthy fear of people. 
we can have an unhealthy fear of fear of man is the phrase. It's an unhealthy fear, meaning you're worried about what people think. You see, these, these, these men, these Sanhedrin, yes, they have an ulterior motive. They want to trap Jesus in his words. But notice that they're not willing to repent. They're not willing to admit what is true and right. Why? Because they, in their hearts, they're like, we don't believe. And, but then they're fearful of what the people, and the people are right. You notice this. In this situation, the people are right. But they feared them that they're going to they're gonna side with Jesus. We're going to lose our authority. And so we're not going to answer the question. But if you're at all like me, and I, I mean, we're human, so you're a little bit at least like me somewhat, I think. And so, but for me, there is that, there's just that tendency in our hearts to want to fit in. To, and we, we know what God want, sh, wants for us. We know even what God's word says. And I should be obedient to God's word. But we're worried about what people think. We're worried, what will the people do? What will the people say? We're so focused on what others... And we're putting them on a platform and saying, I'm not willing to obey God because the other people maybe will make fun of me. Other people will say evil against me or what other people think I'm weird or I'm, I'm like one of those weird Christian people. And so we're so concerned by people. And we see it even here. They're motivated by fear that they're unwilling to hear what Jesus is trying to tell them. That his authority is from God and they're not willing to see it. And so Jesus turns to a parable. It's the last parable that we get in the book of Mark. It's an extraordinary parable. It's one that's going to take some time for us to just walk through it together. And I believe there are some lessons that we can learn along the way. So Jesus' authority is being questioned. And here it tells us in verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, let's pause for a second, because I don't know if you have a vineyard in your backyard. I don't. And I definitely, I, I like grape juice, and I like grapes, but I'm not even remotely going to try to do either of those things, is to <laughs> grow grapes or have to, to make my own grape juice. But the word, that, what Jesus is giving is this is a very, very familiar setting for him. He's using, I mean, there, people would have had land, like his audience, his direct audience would have known exactly what he's talking about. But they also are going to, we're going to see is most people, the reason a, a thing is given, a story is given in a parable is so they, they won't understand it fully. I know that's kind of surprising. You can go back to one of our previous messages on parables back way earlier in the book of Mark to help explain that. But here, as he's speaking in a parable, they're actually going to get this parable. They're going to realize that Jesus is speaking about them. But first, you have to understand, what's his, his, his topic? What is he addressing? And notice he's, he's saying, there is this man who planted a vineyard. It's his land. He owns the land, he plants a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it. I mean, he's invested a lot into this land. And now what he's done is he's leased that land to tenants, people who will lease it from him. But I want you to turn with me to Isaiah. If you have a Bible in Isaiah uh, chapter 5. 
I want you to see what they would have understand about this story. And this is going to help us understand the story. So if you have a Bible, Isaiah chapter 5, I'll read it um, as well. But listen to what he's saying. This is, this is see, the, the word of a vineyard was oftentimes in the Old Testament used as describe Israel. So this is a, a the story that is going to be about Israel. He is talking about them, okay, to his direct audience. Notice what it says. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. It's a lot like what we just read in this parable in chapter 12, verse 1. And it tells us in verse 4, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield, why did it yield wild grapes? Skip down to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is, here's the description, the vineyard of the Lord of the host is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. Notice, he looked for justice, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see, this is a prophecy that the audience of the day in first in this first century, as Jesus is walking on earth and he's teaching to, and he's talking about and giving this parable, this is why they understand this parable, because they know who Israel is. They know that they're described as a vineyard and that God has given them this land. If you know the Old Testament, you know that God had a people, a chosen people. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make all the people of the earth be blessed through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And he does, and he says, I'm going to give you this very land in Canaan. Eventually, it goes outside to Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt for years. Then God sends Moses. Moses goes and says, let my people go. They go. They cross the Red Sea, and then they don't trust God fully, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And eventually, finally, they go into the land of Canaan. This is the promised land. This is the vineyard that God has given to Israel. But notice, I want you to see this. Notice who's the owner. Who's the owner of this land? It is God's land. They are tenants. They are tenants. It is his. And look back at Mark chapter 12. It tells us a man planted this vineyard and put a fence around it. He's protecting it. It's his. It's his land. He wants to protect his people that he's going to lease this to. In verse 2, it tells us when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So remember, whose is this land? Whose is it? It's the owner's land. It's not the tenant's land. But now the tenants are like, this is our land. This is our wine. This is our fruit. This is ours. It belongs to me. So when the owner sends a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Again, this would not fall on deaf ears. They would understand tenants. They would know that people, that this is exactly what a person would do. They'd have the land and they would lease it. And the people would work the land, do all the work, and he would get, he would get what was his. He would get a portion of that just because he owns it. In verse 3 it says, And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So this owner sends 
Here's the picture, going back to Isaiah 5. What did God do over and over again to the people of Israel? He would send prophet after prophet to warn them. And you know what happened to many of those prophets? You know what happened to Isaiah? Doesn't look like any kids are in here. I mean, he was cut in half. He was killed. He was martyred. That's what they did to him. They did this to all the, I mean, all the, most of the prophets were harshly treated. They were beaten. And here's the description. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him. And then it says in verse 4, and again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. This is the prophets. These are the ones. God sent his messengers. He sends them to go and, and be my representative, speak to the people, call them to repentance and trust in me again. And they took those prophets and they said, no, we don't want you. We want to be in control. We want to have authority over our lives. I'm my own owner. You can't control me. It says in verse 5, And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Couple, a couple just quick lessons from just this part of the story so far. One is this, is we shouldn't be surprised by opposition and persecution when being sent by God. We shouldn't be surprised by opposition and persecution when being sent by God, when doing the Lord's work, when you're going and you're going to live for the Lord and you're going to share the gospel, know that you will probably face opposition and potentially even persecution. The reality is many of us don't face either of those things because we're not bold in our faith. We're not proclaiming the goodness of God. We're not telling other people. We're not going and sharing the gospel. We're not going into places of, of hard places. They know that you're going to face opposition and persecution like these who have gone before. This owner, but really the picture is God sending his prophets and sending various people in his name to go and warn the people. And what did they do to him? They said, no, we don't want you. We don't want your word. We don't want, your, we don't want to hear this. We want to do what we want to do. Get away from us. And eventually they beat them and they kill them. Man, it reminds me of all the saints who've gone before us. Many Many, 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 especially through the Great Reformation and the years before, who experienced excruciating and painful deaths and sufferings to get us the Word of God in our own language. I mean, I think of that with other missionaries who've gone into villages and areas with extreme hostility, but are willing to go because they know those people need the gospel too. But yet, at the same time, they experience suffering and pain. We should we not be surprised at all by opposition and persecution when being sent by God. But I want you to hear this too. There's another lesson. There's an even more encouraging one, I guess you could say. Is God's see, I want you to see God's love in this. See his patience. I mean, did, you, did you hear the patience that we're seeing here? He sends a servant. 
he sends another servant and another servant. And it says, and he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, he keeps sending. He keeps going after. He's pursuing his people. He knows that they shouldn't be living for themselves and living as if they're the owner. That they should be living for another they're not. And so he sins, and he sins, and he sins, and he's pursuing. But I want you to see how much he pursues. Continue the story. And so he sent all these different ones. And verse 6 tells us the shift. He had still one other. Notice the extra language here, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. You see, this is the picture of God's amazing grace, his love toward us. He says, I'm going to even send my one and only son. Scripture says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. If the picture is this in the Old Testament, who was spared? Abraham's son was spared. This picture of a sacrifice, God said, no, you don't have to sacrifice your son. Isaac is saved. He spares your son. But when it came to his own son, he says, I will give him. And he sends his son to the people, and the people despise him and reject him. Remember, this is a picture of Israel. Israel, they see the Messiah, and they say, no, not him. We don't want him. The Sanhedrin are trying to figure out how to kill him. The people are turning on him as we speak through this week. Eventually to cry out, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us a filthy person who has done awful things. We'll take him. But kill Jesus. Kill the son. Why? Why specifically the Sanhedrin? You see, they're losing their authority. And I want you to hear this. This is the problem of our day. This is a phrase, right? My choice. It's my body. No one can tell me what to do with my life. I'm in control of my life. You hear all that? What kind of language does that sound like? That sounds like owner language. Like, I am in control. No one can tell me what to do. You see, we don't like having authority telling us what to do. My kids don't like it either. I mean, your kids probably don't like it either, right? We don't don't want someone, man, why do we have to go to bed now? Like, give us one more hour. My my daughter right now, uh, as y'all, most of you know, is adopted and has special needs and various things, but she's like, one more minute, one more minute. She says that all the time. Like, one more minute. Three more, three more minutes, she's getting better. She's like, 10 more minutes? She's starting to figure out, like, hey, if I say a little bigger number, maybe I'll get that. And she has no idea the concept of time and all that stuff. But she understands, like, I want more time. 
She doesn't want to be told what to do. Our biggest battles, I got some scars from it this past week. Uh, Some of our, our biggest battles are over authority. She wants to get her way. But isn't that some of my same battles with God is I want my way. God, why? This isn't fair. God, why, why, would you, why are you allowing this to happen? This isn't, this isn't fair or with my money. God, like, no, this is my money. These are my possessions. These are my things. You see, we, we were talking about this in our rooted groups a couple weeks ago about an owner versus a manager and how the view of things and stuff, when we, when we think that our finances are ours, that we own it, it's really hard to let go of even 10% or a percentage of it. But when we recognize that God owns it all, that he owns everything, that all belongs to him, we then see it as God's only asking for a portion of it back. That's really a blessing. When we, when we turn it on its head and we say, God owns everything. So listen, my finances, that means how I spend, not just how I give, how I spend, how I utilize money and resources and things is because I'm not an owner. I'm a manager. I'm a steward. And how am I handling what God has blessed me with, whether that is a talent I mean, some of you, some of, I mean, you got to see there's talent that stands up here and leads us in worship. And they're using it to lead us into worship. Like some of you have other major talents. And you're working in a, in a field right now with a talent that you have. And you're, you can utilize that for the kingdom. Whether that is in re- giving you an income or also just a, you're now put in a position of potentially of influence. In your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home. But when we have this mindset that we own everything and that everything belongs to me, then when anything comes in the way of that, you're like these Sanhedrin and you're saying, no, 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 no. Or you're like these tenants and you're like, I don't like this. Get away from me. This is what the tenants did. But notice and see the grace of God for these people. He sends, I'll even send my son. And here's the thing. This, they're like co-conspirators. The father and the son, they had a plan from the, before the foundations of the world to have his son come and know that he would be killed and crucified. But it was going to be the only way for man to be saved. And we see this as we continue. So they killed him, it says, and then it says in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? <laughs> They've now killed his son. What will he do? It tells us he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. What does that mean? If you're familiar with Israel, you know or you may know, that at this time there was Herod's temple. Okay, so there was a couple temples. Herod expanded the temple. He wanted his name kind of inputted in it. And so he expanded it greatly. But first there was Solomon's temple, the first temple that was made. David wanted to build a temple, the the king of Israel. Um, And his son Solomon's the one who actually built the first temple. He builds this temple to the Lord. It was dedicated, beautiful, ornate, um, a place of worship where where it was a picture of God dwelling with his people, and it was a place of offering sacrifices and, and worship. And <clears throat> but it was destroyed by Babylonians about 400 years after it was built. So it was built about 1,000 years, not quite 1,000 years, before the time that we're reading in Mark. Solomon's temple was built. And about 400 years later, the Babylonians ransacked it and destroyed the temple. 
And that's where you get the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of those as well. Um, and then, we, if you go back in your Bible, I know this is why sometimes reading your Bible can be confusing because it's not chronological. It's not necessarily chronological. So Ezra, so Ezra, one of the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, was, was the story of the temple being rebuilt. Nehemiah rebuilding the walls. Ezra, the temple and the temple, and then them regaining and reading the scrolls back to find the people are repenting. They're standing. They stood for de- like a day listening to God's word being read. And here's this picture of the temple being built. And this temple is the one that's still standing at, that, at this time, except Herod had expanded it further and made it bigger. And this is where Jesus is coming into this temple But here's the point. The Messiah had come to his own people, but his own people rejected him. And this is what we have here. Israel, his chosen people, said, we don't want you. They didn't believe he was king. They didn't believe he was the son of God. They believed he was a heretic. And so when it says here, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Meaning this is actually good news for us is that the gospel came to the nations. The nations, the place of the house of prayer for the nations. God's people is all people. God came for all people. You know, when we, when we hear God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I mean, it's for all people. It's not just for one nation. It's for all nations. And here the people of Israel reject him. And guess what's going to happen in just a few years, about 60 or 70 years later, uh, as, or, or just, actually not 60 years later, just a few years later, in about 70 AD, the temple will be destroyed. Rome will ransack this temple, and that temple is still not there to this day. The remnants are there. There's actually a dome of the rock on top of it. It was given away. The people here, notice what it says. He quotes scripture for them. Have you not read the scriptures, the verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting from the Psalms. And as he quotes Psalm 118, As he quotes this for us, what he's telling us is very, very clear. He's saying the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He is saying, I am the stone that the builders, being the the, the leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the people of God have rejected him. They've rejected the cornerstone. They've rejected him. This stone became, who had become the cornerstone And notice what he's saying, this authority. Remember they asked about whose authority? Well, here he's quoting scripture and he's saying, and this was the Lord's doing. Where's this authority come from? It comes from God. And guess what? I am God. They just don't see it. And hear this, and I want you to hear this. This is so important for us. If Jesus, and you can write this down, if Jesus isn't your foundation, your whole life will be out of alignment. You will mess up everything. Like you try to build your life on your career, Success, it'll eventually crumble. If you want to build your life on your beauty, I don't want to try to be funny here, but I, was, I saw Georgia play Tennessee yesterday, and I saw a certain someone at the game yesterday. Her name's Dolly Parton. And I'm thinking about beauty. You know what, you know what, you know what happens over time? We get old, right? 
But then some people choose surgeries and surgeries and surgeries, but there's certain things you just can't hide. It's one thing that she always wears. If you notice her hands, she always wears gloves. She's always wearing gloves, always wearing a glove of some sort. Saw a picture of her yesterday at the game, wearing her gloves. You can try to cover up. Remember we were singing this earlier? I wasn't thinking about Dolly while I was singing this, I promise. But, but, you know, fame, fame, beauty, they hurry by. It was the song we were singing, My Worth is Not in What I Own. You know, you can have fame and beauty and glory, and guess what? You build your life on those things, they will crumble. And he's saying, if you don't take the cornerstone, and so when they would build a building, remember, they don't have the techniques of concrete and all those things, but we still use the same concept even today. I mean, I've been watching on Gravel Springs. They have, they have perfectly flattened this massive land. Like, they have worked like, for a year or more to get this just right because they don't, they don't want to be like, well, let's just build a huge building here and we'll have a lot of people work here. And so they just start making stuff. No, they've got to get everything perfectly right because if they don't get it right from the beginning, it will crumble. And here's the point. He's saying the cornerstone was the perfect stone. They had to find this perfect stone that was perfectly symmetrical, that would work. And it would become the first one because that first stone, if it's perfectly symmetrical, everything else will work off of that stone. And Jesus is making a claim about himself. And he's saying, the stone, me, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And here's the reality, and I said this already, but if Jesus isn't your foundation, your whole life will be out of alignment. Like, you can, you can drive a steering wheel and try to stay straight, but if you're dealing with an alignment issue, it's constantly pulling you. If you left to yourself, it's going to pull off the side of the road. It's going to take you where you don't want to go. That's exactly what happens when you build your life apart from Christ. When you build it on fame, when you build it on success, when you build it on other pursuits, you see here, the cornerstone, has, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And notice verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him. But again, they feared the people. For they perceived, notice this, they get, this is so sad. This really is sad. They feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And they figured it out. He was talking to them. And he was talking about them. But they feared the people because they, they didn't want. They thought There's, now's not the time. The people are too much with him so far. We've got to work a little harder to get the people against him. And they're going to. But they feared the people. But they were perceiving that this parable was against them. I love what Spurgeon said. There's so many times we could quote Spurgeon every week. He was a pastor for, for years and years, known as the Prince of Preachers um, over in uh, England. And so Spurgeon said this, if you reject him, talking about Jesus, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. What I want you to see in this story and as we close is see the love of God that he would send his son. I think we can look at this story and see like all the, the, the ugliness of it, the rejection, the hatred, the, the wanting to have control and all those things. But I want us to first and foremost see, see the love of God in this story that he, even though these people reject him, he's going to still send his son. And this is going to be the only way for salvation for people. 
You see, that they, the, the religious leaders of the day, they're afraid of the people. They're afraid of, of what they'll do and what they'll say. And they're so against, they've already made up their mind about Jesus, that they're unwilling to do what John was calling them to do. Repent. Listen, don't let your pride, your arrogance, keep you from repenting, from turning from sin and trusting in Christ. Listen, the temptation is to own. The temptation is to do what you want to do with your life. I own my life. I can do what I want to do. I have control over it. But here's this teaching that we see as a follower of Jesus. You're relinquishing that. Paul uses language of slaves as children of God. Like, this, he uses slave language, saying we're, we're a slave to God. And, and here's the beautiful thing. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, one time, and I'll end with this, <clears throat> I heard Abraham, uh, Abraham Lincoln years ago, I've heard that it's maybe not even, it's like one of those apocryphal type things that kind of got embellished over the years. But it's an incredible story to illustrate this point. Uh, it's described as Abraham Lincoln, you know, uh, with trying to end um, slavery uh, in America and it was told a story about him that he approached one day um, a, uh, a trade where they were, they were trying to sell off people uh, for slaves. And so he was there, and he's standing there, and he's in the middle of the crowd, and then they start auctioning off, you know, a dollar, two dollar, whatever, the price for this person, this girl, uh, to be a slave. And he started to um, bid on her. And he, as he goes and he bids, and eventually, sure enough, the auction goes to a close, and he wins the bid. And the, the girl comes to him thinking, here is again another, another uh, white man who's just going to treat me harshly and, and become a slave for this man. And when Abraham, looked, Abraham Lincoln looked at her, um, he said, uh, you're free. And she said, what? I'm free? Like, like, no, he's like, you can go wherever you want to go. You can do whatever you want to do. You're completely free. And she's, like, she's just befuddled and she's confused. And she says, well, you really mean that I can go wherever I want to go and I can do whatever I want to do? She said, okay. And he said, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. You can go wherever you want to go. And she said, okay, I think I'll stay with you. And the point being is this. We can sometimes think that by being a slave to God, like this some harsh terrible thing. No, it's how we are designed to fit is under his authority. So when we approach God's word on a Sunday morning, we're coming, we're placing ourselves under the authority of scripture saying, what God has spoken, I should act on. What God in his word is telling me to do, I should do. And that should be our heart's response. Our heart shouldn't be like, well, I'm worried about what people think or uh, I don't know about this. I don't, I, I don't want to lose control. I, I want to do what I want to do. No, we, we humbly submit to this king. And here's the beautiful, beautiful thing. And I, I keep saying I'm going to end with this. And one more thing. One more thing. One more thing. I promise. I don't want to promise. Never mind. Romans 8. Romans 8. I do believe I'm going to end with this, but I don't want to promise because I'm worried I will not follow through with that. Verse 15. Listen to this. You see, they wanted to kill the heir to take what wasn't theirs. But what they didn't realize was God was sending his son to give them 
what wasn't theirs in the first place. But he was actually going to give it to him. He wants to give him the inheritance, and they want to take it. And God says, I'm going to give it to you. They're trying to take it by force, and God's saying, I'm going to come give it my life for you. And here's what this means, and I want you to see it in what Paul says in Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You're not just, when you come under his authority, it's not like you become just this slave who's like, here's the master. He's got to just tell me all I got to do and I got to follow him and I hope that I'll appease this master and he'll let me into his heaven. No, 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 no. That's not the point of following Jesus. Following Jesus is about relationship. It's about adoption. It's about family. And he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, notice this, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So what was for Christ is for you. Christ and his inheritance as the son of God is also yours by adoption into his family. You get to be fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, this is a beautiful picture when we see this adoption and heir in this picture that God has sent his son to give of himself. You see, the tenants took the life of the son, take what wasn't theirs, while Jesus gave his life to give what wasn't ours in the first place. What grace that God would send his son, the suffering servant, so that we could have life with him in life how it's intended to be, in submission to his authority. Let me pray.